audio presentation lifted from a YouTube video. This presentation features speaker Jerome Clark, and it is at an award ceremony, which is uh, the Tim Dinsdale Award Ceremony. Uh, Jerome Clark was the recipient of an award. Now, Tim Dinsdale was a researcher from the UK who did a lot of work trying to prove the existence of the Loch Ness Monster. Um, he died in 1987, and there went on to be an award uh, in his name. Now, this talk, you know, it's a little bit dry and academic compared to the stuff that I'm truly drawn to, but I just find that um, Jerome Clark is a very balanced as well as forceful uh, contributor to these to these realms. Um, he speaks quite well on this subject. I was uh, directed to this talk uh, through an email from someone who uh, looks at my blog, and um, and it was partially because he talks about the Oz factor. He he references Jenny Randall's use of the term the Oz factor and how it plays into these uh, these witness experiences, very strange uh, personal experiences, very subjective that are then uh, almost have to be decoded in a way to figure out where the core of the message is in these things. And I, and I very much like the fact that uh, uh, Jerome Clark doesn't make any attempts to put these very challenging uh, reports into any kind of a, a confining box. He's very open-minded. I respect that enormously. This lecture is about uh, just a little over a half hour long. Please enjoy. Um, this is an incredible honor, and um, I'm one of these people who get choked up real easy, so <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. But I, it's one of the great honors of my life, and um, thank you very much. Now, the subject of my lecture comes out of questions that I've puzzled over for a long time. For example, why is ufology's extraterrestrial hypothesis so difficult to get a focus on when it at one time just looked logical and inevitable? And what is the relationship of UFO reports to other extraordinary claims that figure in massive human testimony over many centuries? Are UFOs related to these phenomena, or aren't they? And what can testimony about other fantastic encounters tell us about UFO testimony? Uh, the answer is I find, not surprisingly, are bottomlessly complex and hardly suited to a talk that's supposed to last about half an hour. But perhaps I can give you some idea <coughs> of what I've concluded from a lifetime of research and reflection. And perhaps I can communicate some sense of why I now find it more useful to define myself as an anomalist as opposed to a ufologist. What I'm going to take a look at is two sets of extraordinary claims which predate the UFO phenomenon of the past decades. These aren't the only sets I could have chosen, but these happen to be two I've examined especially closely over the years. It's my conclusion that they shed some light on the vexing questions that ufologists and anomalists deal with. Writing about Scottish fairy traditions in an academic work published seven years ago, two British folklorists pleaded with no small hint of exasperation exasperation. It should be possible to believe one's informants without believing their explanations. 
Now, another student of Scottish fairy traditions was the Reverend Robert Kirk, who lived between 1644 and 1692. In his classic work, The Secret Commonwealth, Kirk recorded the living lore of his parishioners and and other local people who were certain that they lived alongside a complex otherworldly order which in many ways parodied the society of human beings. Fairies marry, play music, dance, wage war, farm, own livestock, ride horses, and have a political order ruled by a queen. The supernatural landscape overlies the natural one. Thus, visible hills, caves, bodies of water, and other natural features conceal the usually invisible race which dwells inside in what our time we would call another dimension or a parallel world. One who passes voluntarily or involuntarily into the fairy realm has crossed the boundary that divides this world from the other world. We're not talking about Tinkerbell here. For one thing, fairies in traditional lore, such as uh, the ones that, the, the, the traditions that Kirk was familiar with, don't have wings. They don't have gossamer wings. They have no wings at all. They're generally said to be short in stature, although some varieties were thought to be of human height. You didn't want to encounter them. They tended to be bad-tempered, capricious, easily offended, and they often caused trouble for people who crossed their paths. And they didn't like to hear themselves talked about, so you had to be very careful about what you were saying because they were invisible. They could be listening to your conversation. They didn't like to be called fairies. So that people invented euphemisms like good neighbors, fair folk, the gentry, the good people. Though well-educated in a time when disbelief in fairy traditions was, was widespread among elites, Kirk himself held that there really was a literal, real fairy land. And it, in his analysis... It was a place that existed somewhere between the earthly realm and the angelic realm. It had elements of both. And he, he came to this conclusion not out of you know, nebulous rumors and folklore and so on, but out of the direct testimony of people that he judged credible who claimed to have had personal experience of it. It's not clear whether Kirk himself had an experience of the supernatural, but he was convinced that it was a real, genuine supernatural order. Now, Kirk remarked that fairies are usually encountered at twilight. Now, he meant that literally, but it's also a, a perfect metaphor of the threshold or liminal space in which the other world passes from imagination into experience, into, in other words, a, a kind of twilight zone of ambiguous epistemology, one in which our rational scientific outlook tries always to impose itself on the landscape of the irrational and the otherworldly. Testimony to fairy encounters is not hard to find. All you have to do is read one of the many books of, written by academics collecting fairy and other supernatural traditions. And you get the impression that the informants are, are sincere enough, and even the, the academic folklorists aren't inclined to accuse them of lying. Mostly they just write it down. When they get around to writing about it for their academic colleagues, the contents of popular belief and the content of of personal experience are undifferentiated. 
The implication is that nothing remains to be explained except the foundations in some superstition-haunted past of a fantastic, scientifically baseless oral tradition. If fairies don't exist, they can't be experienced. Thus, claims to the contrary need not be addressed. But once upon a time, they actually were addressed. Academics accepted the need to actually explain the sightings. What the people in the British Isles saw, according to a theory popular in the 19th century, were real people. I mean, they really existed, but they were a race of small people, the Picts, the original inhabitants of the islands, who it was speculated had been driven into hiding in hills, caves, and mountains. Now, this was an, an extraordinary claim in itself, which died for want of evidence. And also, from its just radical disjuncture from what witnesses were actually reporting. A recent book by an academic writer proposes that fairy sightings may have been generated by encounters with individuals suffering congenital deformities. At the opposite extreme among scholarly investigators was Walter Evans Wentz, author of the famous The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries, published in 1911. Evans Wentz thought that fairies and other supernatural entities were quite real, living in a parallel universe which occasionally overlaps with our own. He wrote, quoting, We can postulate scientifically on the showing of the data of psychical research the existence of such invisible intelligences as gods, genies, demons, all kinds of true fairies, and disembodied men, unquote. The problem with such a literal interpretation is that aside from, you know, apparently sincere testimonial claims, there's no evidence of any, any compelling kind has ever been demonstrated for the presence of a fairy realm. Beyond that, there's another major objection, which... which Kirk noted, but without probably really appreciating its significance, he, if Kirk observed that fairies dress and speak, quoting, like the people and country under which they live, unquote. Now, fairy traditions are ubiquitous in traditional societies, and this in itself is a deep mystery. But each fairy society is suited to its human neighborhood. Considered in their entirety, fairy traditions are too wildly complex, various, and fantastic to add up to a coherent paranormal. About 1953, 1955, somewhere in that area, the early to mid-1950s. But an objective phenomenon unrelated to cultural expectations can be traced well into the 19th century. Now, here's one example I found. I spent a lot of time doing archival research in, in anomalistics, and I found this incredibly interesting item in the December 6, 1887 issue of an upstate New York newspaper. And it was from a letter written by a correspondent in in a nearby village. I'm going to read you exactly what he wrote because I think my paraphrase might dilute its, its impact, but it's quite striking. Now remember, this is 1887. Nobody's heard of UFOs. Perhaps I might interest some of your readers if I should tell them of a strange phenomenon I saw at sunset, October 24th. I was sitting at a window looking towards the east, watching the clouds as they rolled up from the west, giving us a clear sunset. At the south, the forest sparkled and glistened as if clad in what looked to me like sparkling silver. I began to look around for the cause, and coming from the north was what? I can only describe it like this. 
about mid-distance between the heavens and earth and coming at a rapid rate were what looked like silver balls, reminding me of silver coin of all denominations, bright and sparkling, tumbling and rushing through the air, going towards the east, and finally disappearing beyond the lower stratus of clouds. Two winds were prevailing at the time, the upper stratus of clouds going towards the east, the lower towards the west, and this bushel of sparkling balls below the lower clouds toward the east also. This grand phenomenon was visible for about four minutes and was seen by several persons here in town. Can anyone tell me from my description what it was and the cause of it? Now here we have what I call the core UFO phenomenon. Structured, metallic in appearance, capable of rapid, even extraordinary movement. It's what Kenneth Arnold saw on June 24, 1947 over the Cascade Mountains and what an uncountable number of witnesses have reported since. Objects like these can, have been tracked on radar and other instruments, left puzzling ground traces, stopped motor vehicles, interfered with electrical systems, and provided other kinds of evidence of their physical and technological presence. Reports such as these, a number of them well investigated, impressively documented, lend themselves almost inescapably to the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And indeed, if as exobiologically inclined astronomers argue, our galaxy alone contains hundreds of millions of advanced civilizations, a visible ET presence is more likely than its opposite. But if the ETH is a, is a reasonable fit for hardcore UFO events, the effort to devise a unified field theory of ufology has faltered. And it's faltered because as the UFO controversy has dragged on for more than six decades now, UFO phenomena have grown ever more bizarre. I wrote a book about UFOs and ufology in the 1960s and 1970s. The title of it was High Strangeness. And I called it that because during that period, people began to report a range of literally incredible encounters with UFOs, with, with bizarre UFO-associated entities and creatures, men in black, abductions, otherworldly journeys. While unprovable, though they failed to provide a consistent portrait of an otherworldly order, what connected the stories strongly was the witnesses' evident sincerity and their sincere conviction that they had undergone vivid, profoundly weird experiences with all the resonance of real encounters. In the mid-1960s, the focus of some leading ufologists turned to the high strangeness cases as indicators of what they saw as the true underlying paranormal foundation of all UFO-related occurrences. It was undeniably true that the most exotic manifestations made the ETH pale in comparison, made it look like the product of a failed imagination. And paranormal theorists insisted that UFOs were just a mass covering the face of an unknowable, shape-shifting supernatural intelligence. One critic quipped that such a supernatural intelligence is usually called God. The more highly strange the report, the harder it is to prove that some such event has happened in any ordinarily understood sense of event and happened. Encounters with bizarre entities and otherworldly journeys tended to focus on one individual or a very small group of individuals, and such experiences exist only in memory and testimony. 
So what are we to make of all this? I think we can get some clues if we go back to the late 19th century and some curious stories that were in circulation then. Beginning in November 1896, people in California began report seeing strange airships flying overhead. And over the next months, the reports drifted eastward into the Midwest and, and Texas and even out to the East Coast. Many hundreds of reports filled the papers. If you go back to April 1897 and look through old newspapers, you're going to find reports of mystery airships. Now, no such airships were flying in America at the time, according to aviation history. And these reports are preserved in UFO books, not aviation histories. The reports were treated mostly with derision, and the coverage and other social dynamics sort of prefigured the reception of UFO reports decades later. But to those, to those who thought the sightings were not just hoaxes and misidentifications, the belief was that somebody had really invented an airship. And there was hardly a, t a small town in the land that didn't boast some small-town tinker who said he was about to master the mystery and the question of controlled aerial navigation. And in fact, just a few years later at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, two small-town tinkerers did just that. But the, pro the provincial papers of 1897 are not the most reliable source of information. Many tall tales were printed. And one variety of story almost universally rejected as suspect was the 1897 equivalent to the close encounter of the third kind, where people claimed that they had actually seen the airship's land, they had met the crews, the crews were American inventors who gave them a name and said what they were doing and what they were up to and when they were going to declare their invention to the world. And it was generally long assumed that these stories were just pure fiction. But as it happened, you know, you know, after all, you know, if such things couldn't have happened, as aviation historians attest, how could anybody have experienced them? Well, it turns out that apparently people did experience them, as I found out in some research that I've done over the last year or two. I was particularly interested in an incident that was reported in the Houston paper on April 21, 1897, describing something that is said to have happened late on the evening of April 19th just outside Beaumont, Texas. J.R. Lagone and his son Charlie were returning home late at night and uh, they were putting the horses, they were unhitching the horses when they noticed lights in a nearby pasture. And they walked the several hundred years, several hundred uh, yards to where the lights were and they discovered there was an immense airship landed in their pasture. And they saw four men moving around it. They, th they described the airship as about 180 feet long, 20 feet wide, with four large wings. And the aeronauts indicated that they needed water. And so, Lagone, so according to Lagone's account in the Houston Post, they came into the house, each of them carrying two buckets. The only crew member to provide information, and then only when asked, introduced himself as Wilson. He said that he and his companions had been flying their machine around. They were going back to the Midwest where they had built this and several other comparable airships. Now, the, on four days after the Houston Post published this story, the New Orleans Times-Picayune published an interview with a man identified as Rabbi A. Levy. Levy was a Beaumont resident who was visiting New Orleans at the time. 
And Levy told the reporter that on a recent night, he had heard that an airship had landed on a farm just outside Beaumont. And he was enormously interested and curious, and he went to the site. And in the darkness, he glimpsed this huge airship landed in the field. And he said, I'm quoting what he told the paper, he said, I spoke to one of the men, one of the airship crew, when he went into the farmer's house and shook hands with him. Yes, he did say where it was built, but I can't remember the name of the place or the name of the inventor. He said that they had been traveling a great deal. I was so dumbfounded that I could not form a question to ask, unquote. Now, as people who have studied the mystery airship question are aware, some of these stories are deeply suspect, and sometimes they involve people who don't even exist. They were just made up by somebody, probably somebody in the newspaper office. But I decided to investigate to find out if I could even establish that a J.R. Lagone, a Charlie Lagone, and a Rabbi A. Levy even existed. And I ended up engaging in correspondence with the archivist in the Beaumont Public Library System. And he provided me with, with the proof that the, Levy, that, uh, the Lagones existed. They're mentioned in official records from the period, including an indication that J.R. Lagone died sometime between 1897 and the turn of the century. And his wife is listed in the, his widow is identified in the 1900 Beaumont City Directory. Now, there's also no question that a Rabbi A. Levy existed, and he served in Beaumont in 1897. Beaumont historian W.T. Block has written about the city's small but thriving Jewish community dating back to 1875. In September 1895, Temple Emmanuel was established, and according to Block, its members immediately engaged Dr. Aaron Levy as the city's first resident rabbi, unquote. Block notes that during a six-year stand in Beaumont, quoting, Rabbi Levy, as the voice of the congregation, plunged headlong into community affairs. He won much acclaim. Now, I found references to Rabbi Levy in the Galveston papers of the period. For example, this sentence, Rabbi Levy has won many friends during his stay in Beaumont, unquote. In short, Levy does not look much like a hoaxer or a prankster or a teller of tall tales. And this suggests that not every account of an alleged encounter with human-like airship crew was necessarily fiction. Now, there's another related story that I also investigated involving, uh, it appears in the press of the period, involves a man named H.C. Legrone of Deadwood, Texas. Now, there's no question that H.C. Legrone existed. His father, Adam Legrone, founded a tiny town that in 1882 was named Deadwood. And the younger Legrone established a mill around which the settlement grew. In 1885, he was the town's first postmaster. On the evening of April 28, 1897, he allegedly had this experience. It reported in the Houston Post two days later. He heard a disturbance among his horses, and he went out to check on the cause, and he saw this, flying, this strange flying object approaching from the southwest. And it, it uh, landed, and uh, this, is what, this is what he wrote. I went directly to the place of landing, and on arrival found the ship. Its crew was composed of five men, three of whom entertained me while the other two took rubber bags and went for a supply of water at the well. 
They informed me that this was one of five ships that had been traveling the country, and that this individual ship was the same one as recently landed near Beaumont. After having traveled pretty well around the Northwest, they stated that the ships were put up in an interior town in Illinois. They were rather reticent about giving out information since they had not yet secured everything by patent, but stated they would soon be secure in this. Now, there were no airshipologists in 1897 to interview these witnesses firsthand, investigate the cases, but to the extent that we can read the evidence from limited, if suggestive, evidence, it's surely reasonable to infer that these were credible informants telling incredible stories. In other words, pretty much like many, many millions of people over the centuries. It appears to be possible to encounter things that don't exist in any conventional understanding of the verb. I call these things experience anomalies, or the secondary phenomenon as opposed to the core phenomenon. They typically have a parasitic or even parody-like relationship to a core anomalous event. The anomalous event takes place in the world and can be empirically demonstrated or potentially demonstrated. Its experiential correlate borrows its imagery from the anomalous event, but is otherwise unrelated to it. Experience anomalies are open-ended. Almost anything can be seen, though cultural traditions and expectations play a large, in some ways, determining role in, in shaping their particular content. In experience, individuals perceive supernatural or at least unlikely entities like fairies, mer-beings, angels, the Virgin Mary, gods, monsters, space people, and phantom airship crews. Now, these are not hallucinations as hallucinations are ordinarily understood. These encounters, which sometimes occur collectively, are truly profoundly mysterious, and their cause is unknown. Yet to all available evidence, sincere witnesses and good viewing conditions that assure us of the anomalousness of the observation don't translate into anything that transcends memory and testimony. We barely have a vocabulary to talk about these things. The closest we get to it is visionary experience. And visionary experience is used as if it's an explanation when, in fact, it's only a description. The British ufologist Jenny Randalls calls this the Oz factor, defining it as the sensation sometimes reported by UFO witnesses of, quote, being transported temporarily from our world into another where, where reality is but slightly different, unquote. Now, protean in nature, experience anomalies are variable, changing over time and geography. In transitional historical and cultural periods, they may fuse motifs in curious ways. Here's an, one dramatic in, instance of that I found in a 1907 Tennessee newspaper. It, involved, it supposedly took place in June 1907. It involves a hunter named Walter Stevenson. Stevenson was resting from a hunt out in a rural area, sitting on a log, and he noticed something in the, in the eastern sky, and at first he thought it was a, was a kite. It was approaching him as it got closer. It, be, it revealed itself to be, as the press account calls it, a huge balloon of a pattern he had never in his life before seen, unquote. And beautiful, eerie music was emanating from this object, it landed, and strange people with their faces covered 
stepped out of the car, and as the paper put it, the car was closely curtained with a substance that fairly glistened, unquote. They walked to a nearby spring and knelt down as if in worship. Uh, Stevenson approached them after their worship ritual was over, and he asked them who they were. And one of the crew members pulled the veil off the face, revealing the face of a, of a lady, a benign face of a lady, he called it. And she asked him in German if he had prayed. And the press account goes on, quoting, Instantly all were aboard, the airship rose, and was gone in a westerly direction. Mr. Stephenson states that the incident left an impression upon him that he can never forget. And while he knows that it was some human invention, it looked and the music sounded more like that of angels than of mortals, unquote. Now, if experience anomalies adapt themselves to a culture's idea of supernatural or otherwise fantastic sightings, this one conjures up divine entities, angels, and even by one reading the Blessed Virgin Mary, secret airship pilots, and looking forward to UFOs in the modern sense. Notions of extraordinary encounters, on the other hand, in some instances may also have as their inspiration the sorts of real this-world encounters whose contents are sufficiently exotic and enigmatic as to border on the fantastical. Now, ball lightning is poorly understood, but very few people dispute its existence anymore. But it has its correlates in the liminal zone of experience anomaly. Sociologist James McLennan has noted that, quoting, an effort and excuse me, an effect that occurred during an electrical storm would be termed ball lightning. Other cases with the exact same appearance but occurring in other circumstances would be called UFOs, psychic lights, or will-o'-the-wisps, unquote. Now, in such context, balls of light may act purposefully, as if endowed with intelligence and able to perform fantastic feats such as the opening of and passing through a locked window, according to one of McLennan's informants. Now, where do we go from here? I think what's required is a radically objective approach that respects the testimony that deserves respect. In other words, from people who are sane and sincere, even when it speaks of incredible things. This testimony may or may not tell us fantastic truths about the world, but it does tell us something. peculiar things that people can experience in this world. Where experience anomalies are concerned, the focus of investigations and debates ought to be on the causes, not on the occurrences. It's surely futile by now to argue that all anomalous experiences must bow to conventional explanations. Yet it's also unwise to extrapolate too freely from such experiences, which may not mean all that they appear to mean, in order to invent, with no other justification than a witness's account, an extraordinary phenomenological context in which the reported phenomenon is said to make sense. Anomalies of the highest strangeness dwell in a twilight zone between the daylight of science and reason and the dark night of dreams and superstition. To say that you have seen one is not necessarily to say that the anomaly lives on in the world when it is not briefly occupying your vision and scaring the daylights out of you. We may experience unbelievable things, but our experiences of them may tell us nothing except that they can be experienced. 
you can see a fairy or a mermaid or something comparably outlandish. But however resonant the experience may be to you, the rest of us cannot infer from your testimony that the, such creatures are real. In fact, we can be pretty certain they aren't. And that's all we can be sure of because what we've done here is to remove one explanation from consideration that such things exist at event-level reality while failing to put another in its place. Still, in conclusion, this concept of experience anomalies relieves us of the false demands of literalism. We no longer have to argue for the authenticity or inauthenticity of the described phenomena. Not that a profound enigma does not remain a mystery of imagination, culture, perception, consciousness, being, and more, a mystery so impenetrable that it eludes vocabulary itself, our very sense of the assumed relationship of event to experience. Happily, though, it removes us from the most onerous burden of all. We can now believe our informants without having to believe their explanations. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. It's traditional in our organization that we always have time for questions. Now I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. I know what you're talking about. Oh, um, the DMT literature, right? Yeah, am I familiar with it? Very slightly. To the extent that basically I know what you're asking about, and that's about it. Anomalous and unusual experiences, but that don't seem to make and they even are partially objective in the sense that people will retain what happened, you know, three years ago, and they'll be back in the same place. It's all evolved over the course of three years and so on, but there doesn't seem to be any sort of normal objective evidence. Well, that's very interesting. That's something that I'm going to have to look into. I think that experience anomalies occur in all kinds of strange contexts. I was reading Vincent Bugliosi's book on the Kennedy assassination, and he just, one of his chapters is devoted to a really kind of discordant event that doesn't really fit into um, kind of any kind of ordinary rational understanding of the history around the Kennedy assassination. And it occurred to me that this might be an anomalous event. I mean, an, an, an experience anomaly. These things do occur in, in different contexts, not just ones that are, you know, on their face anomalous. And so I'm, I'll look into that. This is a real microphone. So in your experience anomalies that you describe, it's of an individual who experiences something. But uh, there are also cases that you've described in which multiple individuals experience something. So in that case, that experience anomaly appears to be objective to multiple people. And then finally, uh, there are other events, such as this conference, where everybody in this room is experiencing the same thing. Uh, so this is uh, an anomaly um, that's uh, universally experienced. So at what point do you call something an objective reality? If it's one, peop one person experiences, several, or everybody? I, I think that, well, I think it's demonstrably true that experience anomalies can be collectively perceived, but they're generally confined to a small, like generally, usually it's one individual but it can be a small group of individuals at the same time and place. 
And, I, and that, that's what makes experience anomalies you know, so extraordinarily strange is that on, you know, they're, they're at their core, I think, objective, I mean, sub subjective, but they're tapping into something larger that has a kind of temporary quasi-objectivity. I think that, as I said, we're dealing with something that is probably beyond our vocabulary. It's hard to talk about, but is occurring all the time all around us. Uh, since ultimately, with some levels of indirection, everything that we think we know about the world boils down to either our own experiences or the testimony of other people about their experiences and observations, um, doesn't the idea that multiple people can share an experience that nevertheless is not real somewhat uh, undermine the whole concept of evidence? Well, yeah. Uh, I think that's one of the points I was making, that there are certain kinds, that, that the anomalous event is one for which evidence can be demonstrated and documented. For example, a close encounter the second time, where UFO leaves ground traces, which can be taken into a laboratory and shown to be very strange, maybe suggestive of some unknown technology. But somebody's vivid story of entering an otherworldly realm uh, is only somebody's really vivid sensation. And you can collect all kinds of reports of this otherworldly realm, but you won't find that any two of them are the same. They may, they may have certain features in common. But as I said in, in, in the lecture, these claims are just too wildly variant to give us a coherent geography. In the movie, uh, What the Bleep, uh, there's a story told about natives that uh, witnessed the arrival of Columbus's ships and that most of the natives that see this, because it's something so far outside their experience, they, they actually don't see it at all. It's almost invisible, whereas the shaman of the group, those that are used to seeing the sort of weirdness that goes on, they're the only ones capable of seeing it. Uh, anything at all like that uh, resonate with uh, your talk? Well, I think that you know something profoundly strange and, and far beyond current knowledge is going on with these experience anomalies. But so experience anomalies is not an explanation. That's just a, a description, a way of thinking about them. And I think that it's clear that whatever, is, whatever the stimulus is, it's filtered through cultural expectation and consciousness. It's like, in some sense, an extraordinary anomaly of consciousness. That's not all it is, but that's how it gets to us. Jerry, we thank you for doing this. Thank you. Very interesting.